Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome and my uh, happy Father's Day to all you guys. Some of you may not be fathers yet, uh, but you are sons, and all you ladies have a father. So today's a day when we want to uh, appreciate fathers. Some that are with us, we know that one is with us, the father to the fatherless is always with us, and we want to pay him tribute today. I want to take this moment, if there are kids available that uh, want to be dismissed to Children's Church, now would be the time for you to go. I also need to say before I get going in today's message, uh, I'm, not, I'm not preaching to anyone specific in here today. You be the judge whether I'm talking to you or not, but uh, some people told me that they were concerned that I might be talking to them so they were going to sleep during the sermon. <laughs> Have you, ever, have you ever been in the process of reading your Bible and you come across some expression that you've heard a number of times before, but you never knew that it came from the Bible? I find there are a bunch of those. One example is Mark 15, and it might be an expression that not all of you have heard, or at least not a number of times, but it's from the story of the demon-possessed man that, that Jesus uh, freed from demon possession. He just released him, and the people came around him to see what was going on, and they saw this man, quote, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. I have to tell you, as a kid, when I first heard that, I thought, well, of course he had clothes on. What do you mean in his right mind? And my little brother said, well, you have to be crazy to sit there naked. (laughs) There are other expressions, though, about... For example, reap what you sow from Galatians 6, 7. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And who's, who's never heard of today's expression about there being a fly in the ointment? That comes from Ecclesiastes 10, where it says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, which means that the ointment has been spoiled. And we've been talking about the early church, the new church in Jerusalem. And we're finding out today that there was a fly in the ointment, even in the first century church that we're going to study today. And it did produce kind of a putrid stench in what had been a sweet aroma of God's presence among his people in Jerusalem. Sin had reared its ugly head. It's a glaring sin that God dealt with quickly. And severely. And God's response to that sin has shocked believers throughout the ages, including today. People wonder at it even today. I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. And on your way there, you might want to put a finger in Matthew 23. We're going to spend some time there as well. But this lesson teaches that God is no more pleased with sin among his people under the new covenant than he was with his people under the old covenant. Now our main characters today are Ananias, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Hananiah, which means Jehovah is gracious, and his wife Sapphira. Her name means beautiful. Unfortunately, neither of these folks did a great job of reflecting the meaning of their names. So this morning we're going to start by taking a look at a deception that stained the church. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and took the proceeds to the apostles, as we talked about last week, to contribute to the needs of the needy that were in the Jerusalem church. Unfortunately, there was a fly in this ointment. First of all, there was a deliberate deception. Now, we're all familiar with deliberate deceptions at football time, are we not? (laughs) It's always interested me how the rules of speaking and writing the English language have changed over the years. For example, I was told in high school, and I took a lot of uh, college prep English and, and all of those high AP courses, they call them now and stuff, but I was always told not to start a sentence with the word not or but. And yet, our verse today starts with the word but. Now, clearly, verse 1 opens up and says, but a man named Ananias. And it's a critically important word here because it, it clues us into the idea that there is a contrast being made here. This story and the one that preceded it. A contrast between this story of a man and wife and their hearts versus the story of a godly man, Barnabas, part of the church's sweet aroma that I spoke of a moment ago, and his heart. Acts 4.37 tells us that Barnabas had sold a piece of property. He, quote, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet for the benefit of the church. It was a purely sacrificial gift, and he laid all of the proceeds there. But verse 1 says that our guy Ananias and his wife also sold a piece of property, but according to verse 2, they handled it just a little differently. It says, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see the contrast? Barnabas sold his land and gave all of the proceeds. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and only gave part of the proceeds. Was that the sin? Well, you may be surprised when I say no, that was not the sin. The church had no requirement for anyone to sell anything or to give anything. There was nothing required of them. Ananias and Sapphira's problem was that they had given the impression that they were going to give all of the money, just like Barnabas had. So they were being sacrificial in the eyes of the rest of the church. They wanted a church to believe that they had given their money sacrificially as Barnabas had, but they didn't want to actually have to pay the price that he paid. Their sin was not that they kept some of the money for themselves. Their sin was hypocrisy. Their sin was lying. They created the impression that was not real and not true. Someone once wrote that no one is so ugly in God's sight as the man or woman who flaunts a spiritual beauty that they do not possess. In verse 3, the the phrase, keep back, or he kept back, is Greek, which means to steal or to pilfer. Today's vernacular, we'd probably read it, embezzle. And that betrays what was in the hearts of our couple today. 
Keeping a little would have been fine if they had acknowledged it in the first place. But in this case, it was the equivalent of stealing. So what was behind this deceptive deed of theirs? What, what would make Ananias and Sapphira do such a thing? Why lie or deceive? Allowing the other people of the church to believe that their gift was more than it really was. And the simple answer to that question is attention. They wanted to be praised as sacrificial givers without having to be sacrificial givers. They wanted to be seen as generous like Barnabas was. But behind the scenes, what was their rationalization for their decision? Maybe they were just putting something away for a rainy day. Or maybe they felt the church's sharing of resources had gotten a little bit out of control. Or maybe they just thought that well, they'd have more to give later when everyone else had already given all they had. Frankly, who's to say what they were thinking? Well, God for one knew. He was aware of all of the thoughts, all the planning, the scheming, whatever their reasoning, and I dare say he was not pleased. As you'll recall, Jesus strongly rebuked the religious leaders of the day throughout his ministry. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to chapter 23 of the book of Matthew. In this chapter, there are at least seven times Jesus says, Woe to you. That's a strong address. And he was addressing the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And he goes on to describe and rebuke their hypocrisy. In fact, so we can get a feel for exactly how the Lord feels about this subject, I want to read this scathing assessment of the Pharisees' behavior from this chapter. Again, Matthew chapter, or, yeah, Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Now, right off the bat, I think you might have noticed here that we get a couple more of those phrases we didn't know came from the Bible. To do as they say, not as they do. <laughs> and practice what you preach. Then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus addresses true humility. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then in verse 13, he gives us the first of seven woe statements. Now, you can spell it W-O-E or W-H-O-A, however you want to spell woe, but it's an important word here. Beginning at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swells by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood of shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Uh, I don't know about you, I need to take a breath. <laughs> How would you like to have been on the receiving end of that dressing down? Not me. He let him have it. And the bottom line here is Ananias and Sapphira qualified for these same rebukes. They had acted hypocritically and they would be judged for it. Offering fuel to Ananias' hypocrisy was greed. He just couldn't bring himself to give away all of that money. But he wanted the credit for being sacrificially generous. Now, people often misquote 1 Timothy 6.10. They say, money is the root of all evil. But that's not quite what the verse says. 
It's the love of money that is at the root of much of the evil of our world. And even in the church today, look at the passage. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The greed of Simon in Acts chapter 8, out of the employers of the fortune-telling slave girl in Acts 16, Felix greed in Acts chapter 24, and of course Judas Iscariot in Matthew 26, all of these point to the love of money as a root of all evil. I notice that it says a root of all evil. Love of money isn't the only root, (laughs) but it is a key one. Possession of money is not condemned in the Bible. uh, Money is amoral, not necessarily immoral, but it's amoral. It has no morals. It's just an amoral medium of exchange. But it is our love of money, or what we can get for it, that's the source of greed in sinful human flesh. But this deception that stained the church did not go unchallenged. And thus we find the detection that saved the church. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. How are the apostles aware of this plan to deceive in the first place? It was the Holy Spirit speaking to Peter. And what was the source of the sin? Verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? We need to understand something. Satan cannot control a believer who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can't be indwelt by two spirits at the same time. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, you cannot be controlled by Satan. But let there be no doubt that he can and will tempt you and and try to appeal to your fleshly nature in a variety of ways. We simply need to choose to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and reject the ideas that he plants in our heads, which Ananias and Sapphira clearly failed to do. Satan was the source. But secondly, we're we're reminded of the substance of the sin, verse 4. Peter asked him, says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours, Right? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the money was there for you. I mean, you had access, right? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Again, the substance of the sin they committed was lying 
about the money that they were giving to the church. They said they were given 100% of the profit. The truth was they gave something less. Keeping part of the profit for their own needs, again, was not the sin. The sin was lying to the Holy Spirit about it. And it's an important consideration for us to see the seriousness of the sin. Peter closes verse 4 by saying, You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias' lie to the Holy Spirit was serious business. Let's not forget the Holy Spirit is God, right? He's the third person of the Trinity. And that's what makes this so serious. But let's also remember this, that all sin is serious. God doesn't have degrees of sin. Only man does that. There's no wink and a nod at God when you do some silly little innocent white lie. There is no white lie. A lie is a lie. Ultimately, all sin is against God himself. King David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he confessed his sin of adultery and being accessory to murder. But in verse 4, he prayed this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How could he say that? Rebellion against God was at the root of David's sin. His crime injured at least four people that we know of who belonged to God. Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, Joab, and Bathsheba's unborn baby. David violated a social order, though, that was created by God. He injured others, but he sinned against God. And there's no sin that's not a serious sin. I get on a soapbox about this occasionally. Um, uh, when people start razzing and railing against homosexuals. Well, the homosexuals are no more guilty than the adulterers. You have churches that say, well, we don't want any homosexuals sitting in our pews. Well, then um, you have to ask the adulterers to get up and leave too. Because there probably are some out there somewhere. What about those who gossip over the fence? Oops, that's just listed as a sin. What about those that lie or steal? That's all sin. And it's all black to God because it's all outside the will of God. When Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph to sleep with her, Joseph refused in Genesis 39.9. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph also understood that all sin ultimately is against God. We, the church, like to pick out sins that we're not personally guilty of and try to excise them from the rest of the body. Then we go hammer those who are guilty of them. But they're all, again, just as black to God. So if impulsive sins are serious, and they are, how serious are those that are premeditated, like this one of Ananias and Sapphira? They made a hypocritical, deceitful plan. And then they executed that plan, fully intending to lie to the apostles and to the church at large. And the problem, of course, was that they were also lying to God. Well, 
Maybe the seriousness of sin is the lesson that God was teaching. When we get to the part where Ananias and Sapphira are judged for their sin. Deaths that sanctified the church. First we look at Ananias' death. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he heard Peter saying, You've not sinned against men, but you sinned against God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out, and buried him. Notice here in verse 5 that Ananias never responded to Peter's probing question about lying to the Spirit. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He just died right on the spot. Now some have suggested that, well, maybe he died of some remorse-induced shock, or maybe it was just a heart attack that he'd been found out. But I find that unlikely. Ananias simply is revealed here as a blatant liar. It's unlikely that he would have been shocked at having to try and explain himself in a tough situation because he had probably been there before. It's probably not the first lie he told. But God acted swiftly, and he acted surely in judging a man who had lied to him. Then in verses 7 to 10, we see Sapphira's death. After an interval of about three hours... His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So when I say God responded quickly and surely, I'm not kidding. (laughs) Three hours after Ananias fell over dead, in comes Sapphira, totally unaware of what had happened to her husband, and Peter opens a conversation with her about the sale of the property, and he tries to give her an opportunity to tell the whole truth. But she failed to take that opportunity. And she repeats the story that she and Ananias had worked out together. And when Peter confronted her with the truth, she too fell down dead. Now, I can imagine in verse 5, it records sincerely a truthful reaction to Ananias' sudden death. It says, And great fear came upon all who heard of it. But imagine now, after seeing that, and in verse 11, after Sapphira also appears to suddenly be struck dead for her sin, it says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I can just about guarantee you there was an epidemic of honesty going on now in Jerusalem. Another pastor likens Ananias and Sapphira's sin here to a a drop of India ink dropped on a pure white sheet of paper in its blatancy. So great was the disregard for the holiness of God that the sin was dealt with immediately to make an impact on the new church and upon the community as a whole. But then 
in verses 11 to 16, we get a demonstration that strengthened the church. Now, you might think that the great fear in verse 11, it says, came upon the church and the community, might inhibit the growth of the church. But that was not the case. The effect of these events was profound. But many more believers ultimately came to believe in Jesus. First, there was a demonstration of purity. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. In some places in scripture, the word fear is used to describe reverence for the Lord. As in fear of the Lord. But here... It literally means to be afraid. People were genuinely frightened of the power that was demonstrated through Peter in the church. And the fear was clearly based on the reality of God's response to impurity. Perhaps especially to the impurity of heart in the church. And who, whether they're in the first century church or the 21st century church, is without sin. Fear is a natural and healthy way for sinners to respond to God's holy judgment of sin, is it not? Secondly, there was a demonstration of power in verses 12 and 13. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Many signs and wonders continued to be done through the apostles. That power and the the power revealed in the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira led to a lot of folks, at least for a while, keeping their distance from the church. (laughs) I I know I'm a sinner, so I don't think I want to go there and get struck dead. But it says the people highly esteemed the believers. But for, like I say, for a while, they feared that their own sin might bring that same judgment on them. The story of the miracles of healing and those seeking those miracles reads like a page from Jesus' own earthly ministry. But it says in Mark sixteen twenty that the Lord clearly worked with them, that is the apostles, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Thirdly, there came a demonstration of Progress in the church, verses 14 and 16. God's grace overcame the fears of the people. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Well, so what? (laughs) Okay, we're not hypocrites. So what does that mean to us? I love the sign on the church that says, This church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. It's important that we look at the details that summarize this story, this whole, this whole event in the church. It's obviously a dramatic story. But if we fail to focus on the lessons and see only the events themselves, we'll fail to learn 
what God wants us to learn from it. So we're going to review the details in the form of three lessons that we want to learn today. First is the the lesson of Satan's strategy. The Bible tells us that Satan strategizes and schemes in his attacks against God's people. Ephesians 6, 11, we're told, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul speaks of forgiving the sinners so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. By way of warning, do not believe that he will give up. Don't be naive thinking that he will not continue because he does today and he will tomorrow. He's still committed to finding ways to destroying the work of God through dividing, disgracing, discouraging, or destroying God's people. And he does it publicly. He tried to destroy the early church through the Sanhedrin, and he failed. So he tried to disgrace the church through Ananias and Sapphira, and again he failed. In both cases, the church continued to grow, but again, don't think that the devil will give up or that he'll stop trying. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we don't have to look very far to see examples of him doing that, do we? Maybe in our own personal lives we know of someone who was separated from the family of God and taken down by the devil in sin. We hear about it publicly in, in leaders and politicians and, and even leaders in the church on an unfortunately regular basis. But we all know or know of those who have been taken down by Satan. Our second lesson is this, this lesson of sin's seriousness. Like I said before, there are many, and I'm sure you've heard the questions, who wonder if God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't just maybe ever so slightly over the top. And I think especially young people feel this way today because they've been indoctrinated with the word fair. It wasn't fair. My dad told me life was not fair. It's a lot more fair than he painted it to be. But but that seems to be the mantra today. But in the big picture, in the grand scope of Scripture, I would say no. I don't think it was over and above. I think of Aaron's sons and their deaths, Nadab and Abihah. Also, and this is one that I thought for a long time was over the top. Remember Uzzah, the bearer of the Ark of the Covenant? who stumbled and touched the ark and God took him out because that was forbidden. Achan, his sin was similar to that of Ananias and Sapphira here, stealing and lying to others. 
They were all dealt with similarly. 20th century pastor and theologian David or Donald Barnhouse agrees. He once made the observation that all of these deaths came at important times of new beginnings for God's people. So a lesson was important. They all came at a time when people needed a clear understanding of the standards of holiness and purity. And we, we talk sometimes glibly about how God never changes. Well, that means his standards never change. His standard of holiness do not change. His standards of purity have not changed. They're still the same. Our requirements are still there. God's judgment should be taken just for what it is. It's a reminder that God hates sin. And I feel compelled to remind us, not necessarily the sinner. But he certainly hates sin. And then our third and final lesson is the story of the church's success. There are times when God seems to focus on quantity growth And then other times he focuses on quality growth. And the church that we're studying here in Acts experienced both kinds in cycles. Quality growth is seen in the deepening of fellowship and purity. While multitudes coming to Christ is seen as quantity growth. Again, both are seen here in Acts. And we should expect to see both today. Sometimes at the same time, sometimes, again, in cycles. And the first century church here in Acts provides us a great model of church life. Maybe even a template for the 21st century church. At least, let's apply it to the First Baptist Church. Which means we just need to make sure that we learn the lessons that we've been given to examine. Let's pray that God will continue to bless this church as we grow deeper in his ways and much more energized to do his work and his will as we continue to study this church in Acts. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we come to you and we're thankful for this record. It's a, it's a difficult record. It's a difficult lesson sometimes to listen to because of the, well, our sense of judgment and and justice are not perfect like yours. And so our warped picture of justice sometimes doesn't allow for a, a quick and complete response as you did here with Ananias and Sapphira. But Lord, we thank you for the record and the opportunity to learn from it, to study it. And as we go through this book, Lord, we are, we are undergoing as a church uh, restoration. We're pointing toward a new chapter in our church. Just as the church in Jerusalem was starting something completely new, we're, we're starting something completely new and different. As we wait for a new pastor, a new shepherd to come among us, Lord, prepare us well. Prepare our hearts Prepare our energy level. Prepare everything that we need to do the will that you've called us to do. We've talked about boldness. We've talked about purity now. Lord, make us bold people. 
Make us bold in, in sharing your gospel with others in our community and willing to be bold in sharing it throughout the state of California and across the globe that you've given to us. And Lord, make us pure of heart. Help us understand that you indwell us as believers. We cannot lie to you. You know our hearts better than we know ourselves, probably. So Lord, help us, help us digest these lessons completely and apply them in our lives and become a, a church that proudly and boldly shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.